I could call this a footnote to the two podcasts I've completed now on the voice or inwardness, part one and two, uh, but I'm actually uh, calling it the Pipes of Pan, and then I'll be done. The Pipes of Pan, because I want to try to intentionally draw some secular and non-specifically religious uh, um, analogies or parallels to what is happening with the voice, because I'm very struck as I think about um, the interiority of Mark Rutherford's voice that he's never been heard. I mean, his voice has never been heard. I mean, did you really know a whole lot about William Hale White before that podcast? That's not to bring attention to me. I just I just gravitate towards these kinds of people. They sort of have a kind of a radioactive, maybe my, my Geiger counter is turned to a different frequency or something like that, but I, I gravitate to these sort of unusual types for um, whatever reasons I do. Uh, other people don't, but um, his internal voice has been completely lost just yesterday, I believe, and then again next weekend it may be 10 days from now, one of his poems, William Hale White's poems, which I think is taken from his first novel, The Autobiography of Mark Rutherford, uh, has been um, read on the uh, BBC Radio 4, thanks to the efforts of a lovely man named Nick Jacobs. Uh, Is it Nick Jacobs? Anyway, it's Mr. Jacobs, someone who's known to me on paper, who uh, finally got this remarkable poem about life and death uh, and uh, mortality and immortality and ultimacy in nature by Mark Rutherford, read on the BBC. But, I mean, the amount of work, you know, that it goes to get even a poem by this fellow. So there's some kind of great resistance to his voice. I don't understand it, but I connect it always with the resistance to James Gould Cousins' voice because you're, you're damned if you do and if you're damned if you don't. You're, William uh, uh, James uh, uh, William uh, uh, Hale White's never been heard of, and he was never heard of in his time. He, he didn't, didn't even have the, the chance to get silenced, although his novels were moderately successful, at least the first two. <clears throat> He has never been well-known. He's always been a kind of speciality interest for some reason that I cannot understand because I regard him as a kind of locus classicus of, 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 of depth. But there it is. And James Gould Cousins, on the other hand, became really famous for five minutes with his best-selling book for five months on the number one, I think it was, on the New York Times fiction bestseller list and his uh, cover of Time magazine and the tremendous interest in his work and in his life. And he was completely spewed out and spewed bat out by a culture in reaction to whatever they thought he was about. So you come out and you have your cover picture on the cover of Time magazine and you're uh, absolutely destroyed and now completely forgotten and uh, under a dark cloud. And similarly, you are uh, treated the same if you never came out at all, which is Mark Rutherford. Fascinating. Now, I want to reflect on the uh, odd fact that the voice uh, is very seldom heard. Occasionally, it it makes an impact. There are exceptions, uh, and for all sorts of good reasons. But I want to um, talk about, really, the voice of Jesus as he experienced this. And he summed it up in one of his most um, powerful maxims, And I want to uh, talk about the pipes of Pan. Now, he's going to talk about the children in a marketplace piping, uh, using little pipes. We've seen pictures of them in ancient Greek uh, uh, satyr plays, you know, and and, uh, they would have been little sort of recorders that uh, boys fashioned. This was, of course, in uh, Judea. 
not in the world of ancient Greece, but you know the idea of a little uh, chamber of wood with holes in it, and these pipes would be used to get people to dance, you know, with a, with a tambourine, like in all the, all the ancient movies, I can... I mean, I can I have all these images and hearings in my mind of biblical epics of sort of maidens dancing in desert tents, you know. And um, but pipes and uh, but I used the pipes of Pan first because I wanted you to think of Arthur Machen, the great uh, high church author of supernatural horror tales, uh, the great god Pan, his greatest tale. Although many of us think that the White People, another remarkable occult tale or weird tale as it's properly called, is right in there. I wanted you to think about. Um, Black Orpheus. I wanted you to think about the the, uh, the 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 man playing his beautiful guitar and everybody dancing, but nobody dancing. And finally, uh, in his the great retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice, entitled Black Orpheus, the man is um, is destroyed and murdered and killed by the menads. Now, um, the, my point is that you have to be your voice. You, you, you and me, we, our voice. If it's going to come out, you can't really at all be um, tied up with the reception. You can't be at all uh, invested in how it's going to be received. Your need to surface, to play your melody, the need to sing your song. We've heard uh, evocations of this, and people sometimes coach people and talking about, you know, you've got to find your song and lift every voice. But um, often there's a kind of idea that if we do so, something is going to happen. Or, you know, once our voice is listened to, then people will listen because they've got to listen because it's our voice. And you can't hold people to ransom, which often people do today to hear your voice. If they don't want to hear it, they may say they hear it, they may tell you they're listening, but if they don't want to listen, they're not going to listen. And what you really have to find, you have to break through to the place like uh, Orphe, Orpheus in Black Orpheus. Uh, and anyone who has a song to sing, I have a song to sing. What is your song? It's a tale of a little, you know, remember, uh, what isn't, isn't that from Yeoman of the Guard? Uh, your song, if you're the poet, whatever that is, your song, your emotional song, your song of love, your rhapsody in blue, your American in Paris um, Mandy, Mandy, is there a minister handy? Whatever, whether you're Cole Porter or whether you're Irving Berlin, uh, whether you're William Shakespeare or you're William Hale White, whether you're who you are or whether you're someone you wish you were, uh, obviously, um, I wish I were Steve Perry. I mean, there's no, who do I, who do you, I want to be Steve Perry. Now, that's a person I'd like to be. If there's anyone, if you woke me up in the middle of the night and said, who would you like to be? I mean, duh, who wouldn't answer, you know, Steve Perry? You know, who wouldn't want to say, oh, Sherry, you know, oh, Sherry, I mean, you know, we all want to be karaoke to um, Journey or to Steve Perry, but it's not to be. But whatever voice I have, and this is all I've got, and you've got yours, you've got to be willing to uh, be the pipes of Pan and let the message of Pan, like, um, oh, who's that wonderful comedian, Tony Randall, who plays Pan, oddly enough, in the Circus of Dr. Lau, that brilliant semi-horror film by George Pan. 
pal that is really so inspired and partly so terrible, but boy, Pan really comes out there with his psycho, with his sexual Pan's uh, pipe. See it, see it. And Barbara Eden, isn't that her name? She later was in I Dream of Jeannie. I think that was her name. She hears the message. But whatever the pipes that you're blowing, whatever tune is coming through your pipes, you have to be willing to take the line that our Lord took in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And here he was, verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. They said, we piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, or as many ancient texts say, as all the translations will tell you, it could be wisdom is justified by her children. Now, that's important to me. Now, let me exposit that, to use the traditional word, a word I don't like because I've now associated it with too many sort of systems. Uh, let me just try to say what I believe verses 16 through 19 is saying. This generation is the generation to which Jesus was speaking who weren't buying, as we say today. They weren't buying his message because, he says, this generation, my hearers, are like the following situation. Now, as always in Hebrew uh, uh, language in the uh, New Testament, uh, there's a tremendous amount of either repetition for effect or there's uh, 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 um, leaving things out for effect. What he means to say, this generation is like a situation in which there's some children sitting in a place where everybody is and they're calling to other children who are across the marketplace from them and they're saying, uh, based upon their experience of playing their pipes to get their, uh, their friends to come and play with them, they're saying to their playmates across the marketplace who did not come when these young boys boys and girls played, they did not come. And so now the children who had their pipes and were playing are saying to the others who didn't respond, who are to be compared to this generation, the children are to be compared, the first children to be compared with Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist, the prophets, and the people across the way are to be compared with the generation that hasn't answered the call and hasn't uh, gotten interested. And uh, this is what the Jesus and John are saying to those who <clears throat> who've not responded. We pipe to you. <clears throat> And you did not dance. In other words, we played fun music. You know, we, you know, can you dance to it? You know, we, we, we tried to do the, satisfy the Dick Clark American Bandstand one to ten thing, you know. A, a, a nice tune, but you can't dance to it. Or okay tune, and you can dance for it. You know, like the Martian hop, you can dance to the Martian hop. Well, we piped to you. We played the Martian hop to you. <clears throat> we piped on the pipes of Pan. And unlike Barbara Eden, you didn't dance. You weren't buying so then we tried, we changed tack. Instead of giving you sort of, you know, a nice Fleetwood Mac song, you know, that you can dance to, <clears throat> we wailed. We, uh, we played Stan Getz or we uh, played Ornette Coleman. You know, we wailed and you did not mourn. You weren't, or we, we played to you the St. Matthew Passion. 
and you did not mourn, or we played for you, you know, um, you, you fill in the blanks here. We, we played the symphony pathétique, and you did not mourn. You neither responded to our message when it was positive and up, nor did you respond to our message when it was realistic and took account of the reality of human loss. Why? I don't understand, but you didn't. And then Jesus explains in historic contextual terms what he's actually referring to. He says, well, now, John, my cousin, he came as a ascetic type, a kind of dark prophet, you know, Philip Wiley. He, he, he came to you with, a, with an ecologically threatening message. Boy, you better change your way. Stop all this talk about Chevron. You know, we're trying to use technology to, to beat technology. You can't do it. You've you got to stop manufacturing. Philip Wiley said the only answer for a country in acute um, uh, 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 ecological um, poison was to simply stop all industrial production for five years in full, notwithstanding the uh, obvious uh, seismic, the big word just used, uh, economic effects of such a thing, put everybody on welfare who was working in an industrial plant and stop all industrial production. Well, people are really going to believe that, right? I mean, uh, they're going to be torn limb from limb. Uh, By the way, in his uh, Wally's last book, The End of the Dream, the mayor of New York is actually torn limb from limb. It's a horrifying sequence when the mayor of New York doesn't properly act in relationship to an appalling ecological catastrophe, and he's torn out of his limo and and, and torn limb from limb in 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 2018. (laughs) I mean, it's unbelievable. John came neither eating nor drinking. He was your Philip Wiley. And you said, <clears throat> Philip Wiley is a crank. He's just a total crank. Let's not listen to him, you know. Uh, maybe Al Gore a little bit, but not Philip Wiley. So I, I, I sent Philip Wiley to you, and you said he's a crank. He's an angry, vituperative, dis, you know, just sort of dry drunk kind of a guy. We ain't going to listen to him. Well, all right. So I decided to, to, do a, a, to do a different tack. I sent the Son of Man. So instead of uh, John slash Philip Wiley, I sent to you the Son of Man. And he came like one, a good old boy, you know. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. In other words, the Son of Man, was he was not all of a downer. He was with you. He was at the wedding in Cana. He danced with you, and he was a, a, a normal person, and he had a nice time, and he had a great smile, and he was a sweetheart, and you could talk to him. He could do what they call pub evangelism, which is such a, in England, they, a friend of mine is leading a Bible study in a pub at 9 a.m. in the morning. Well, that's fine. I think leading a Bible study in a pub at 9 a.m. in the morning, but there were a lot of people who used to try to lead Bible studies 20 years ago or five years ago in pubs at 9 o'clock at night, and it's, you can't do it. I mean, it sounds good. I mean, uh, Jesus might have met the people later or in the morning, but you can't really uh, minister to people who are drunk at the time. You, you just can't because they're not themselves. Uh, that, that's just a sad empirical fact. I wish you could. More power to you. But nonetheless, Jesus would have been in the pub. I was recently uh, looking at uh, uh, a website for a Weatherspoon pub. The Weatherspoon pubs is a chain of pubs, a big chain of pubs in the UK now. Uh, quite well done in their own way, like the sort of modern equivalent of the Bernie Steakhouses of years ago. And uh, the uh, uh, nonconformist chapel or meeting house, a beautiful meeting house from 1738 or so, where Mark Rutherford slash William Hale White's uh, cousin used to preach, Mr. Shignell. And it was apparently a very, Shignell, it was apparently he was a very good preacher, very 
very good guy. The George Meeting House in Exeter, England. It's now a, uh, a Weatherspoon pub. I mean, they've kept it. It's a listed building, and they've kept the pulpit from this wonderful nonconformist 18th century preserved interior. They've taken the pews out, but obviously. But it, it's actually very well done inside, and they've honored in some ways the fact that it was a church. But there, it's still above. I mean, it's not a church. No matter whatever we want to say, it is still, it's not what it, what it, what Mr. Chignall had thought it was when he was preaching there in the mid to late 19th century. Since 1983, it's not been a church. It's nicely handled, but there it is. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, oh, behold, an antinomian. You know, behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, now, we didn't want some prophet straightening us all out like Philip Wiley and accusing us of being wastrels and uh, uh, thoughtless people for the future. Uh, But we sure don't want a guy coming alongside us and being a great guy because we don't want it at all. That's what it's really saying. This generation don't think they want it at all. You can disguise your voice. Uh, as uh, the prophet of old, of yore, where you can disguise your voice as a sweetheart and a nice guy who's a regular fella and, you know, amiable and, and normal. And that's great, too. An everyday kind of a guy. People think that that's what they want. They want a clergyman who is an everyday guy, a father, you know, 38 years old or just a sweet, nice fella. One of one of us, but also, mind you, it can't really be one of us in any about in about seven other ways. If he is one of us in about seven other ways, uh, then we'll kill him. I know that because I've seen it happen timeless times and numberless instances. So watch out if you want to be one of the fellows like the Son of Man is, and they'll call you, um, even though you, they'll call you an antinomian. Uh, they'll say, "Oh, he's lowering the standards. Oh, he's not true to this. He's not true to that. Uh, oh." <gasps> Oh, look what's happened uh, to Rosemary's Baby. Remember that? Oh, that great, uh, what is it, Rosemary's Baby too? Look what's happened to Rosemary's Baby, the omen. Behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and his sinners. And then he ends, however, on a positive note. He says, look, this gener- you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So don't tailor or trim, to use the old word, don't tailor your message to its receivership. This is going to be a short, uh, I hope I can shorten this so we can come out to about 23 minutes here. Don't tailor it. Uh, say what you have to say. The pipes of Pan, be Orpheus, be Paul McCartney, you know. <clears throat> Um, say what you have to say musically, artistically, in the theater, in the drama, in the dance, tripsickery. Say what you have to say, Olivia Newton-John. Say what you have to say uh, in the essay. Say what you have to say to someone you care about and love. Don't tailor it because that's always going to be a conversation that is shortcut. Your your court's Scheiden, you're cutting it short. Uh, cutting, say what you have to say, because he says wisdom is justified by her deeds or justified by her children. And I'd like to say children, because that is what my revised standard version. And I've got a 19, golly, I've got a very a first edition, a 1946 copy I'm holding here of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, and it says very clearly, um, other ancient authorities read children. Well, let's just take that. Let's just take the 1946. It's pretty recent, but let's just take it. I believe that's true. If your voice has wisdom in it, if there is something to what you're saying, it will be justified by the children. That is, by those who hear it. They become the children of the message. The children of the night. What music they make, Mr. Ren... Or is it Harker? Yeah, Renfield. Um, I produce these uh, podcasts, and I don't have any idea 
who's listening to them or if they're being listened to, if they'll ever be listened to. I have something, I've got a song to sing, you know, I've got something I am compelled to say. And here it is that the inwardness of a person is what counts. Jesus said it, you know, but it took a bit of steel from the Long Island L to tell him, you know, I want to quote E.E. Cummings. I can't tell you this is true, um, but if I've said something here about the voice and the power of the unchecked, unmonitored, unconstrained voice, call it Winston Smith. I mean, what did Winston Smith do in 1984? What What was he trying to do? He was in an impossible situation. I mean, that's one of the most tragic, brilliant books ever written. It's sort of Swiftian. It will, it will never date. The, if you read 1984 today in 2011, it will hit you as being absolutely on the mark for where we are in 2011. But had you read it in 1984, a book that he wrote long before 1984, you would have said the same. And I can guarantee you, I believe I can say this, I certainly feel it, that if in 40 years you pick up George Orwell's 1984, you will read it with an astonishing sense. Oh, my, oh, LMG, you know, how did he know these things? Because he was in touch with the truth of life. He understood human nature. And so he has poor Winston Smith trying to, sitting in the corner of his little horrible shop shocking, disgusting little dormitory room with the, the, the uh, Skype person, the per- person who's Skyping uh, on the screen. She can't quite see, you know, she's, they're not quite enough of the Stasi agents to look at every single inch of the room 24-7. So occasionally at a certain hour, <clears throat> he has the general impression <clears throat> that if he sits in a particular place and he sort of disguises it with some other activity, you know, he can appear to be doing something. They may not notice that he's writing his diary. And this is this lost letter, this profound letter that one day will be read. And obviously the conceit is that, that George Orwell has, is giving us this letter from the future of such shocking truth and such powerful self-identification uh, and self-expression in the diary of Winston Smith, which we know how it ends. Now, that, whether it happens or not, that's the beauty of it. That's your voice, and it is there to be listened to and heard, and it probably will be rejected by your friends, and it will certainly be rejected by your enemies. But there may be somebody, and I have reason to believe, even in my little podcasts, that uh, there is one person out there who's uh, getting something out of this voice for better or for worse. And so I'm not going to trim it or try to, you know, um, caution it. I mean, I'll be thoughtful and I'm not going to make comments about particular individuals who are alive today unless they're really nice comments. But one day some of this stuff can perhaps connect with you a sort of little Winston Smith's diary from a small town outside of Orlando in the year late 2011 as a kind of uh, expression of what appeared to me to be the case at the time as assisted by some unknown and neglected and in some ways detested uh, uh, authors and writers of insight, and that includes uh, the wonderful apostle who wrote down St. Matthew's Gospel. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children. It is similar to a situation in which children would be sitting in the marketplace and they would be calling to their playmates saying, look, we piped to you and you didn't dance. We wailed and you didn't mourn. For just like that, John came neither piping nor dancing. And you all said he's uh, an impossible, edgy, angular whistleblower. 
and the Son of Man came, and he piped to you, and he um, gave you a message of joy and affirmation, and uh, neither do I condemn you. And uh, everybody turned on him and said, you goddamned antinomian. You know, who the heck are you to tell us that uh, that uh, that there is uh, no accountability for our own tremendously worked out patterns of action, let alone the people that we hate? You goddamned antinomian. And yet, uh, so you get it going and coming. And uh, yet, yet wisdom, if there's any wisdom to the message that he preached about God so loved the world that he didn't come into it to condemn it, but that the world might be saved by him near the cross, assimilate the negativity and have compassion on your sunk self and your sunk fellow creatures. Wisdom is justified by her children. And maybe you, the listener, uh, you, the living, maybe you are one of these children. Thank you so much, and God bless.